the Beyond the Studio podcast, and you're listening to Season 3, Beyond the Studio East Coast Edition. I'm Amanda Adams. And I'm Nicole Muller, and we're here to help you figure out the business of being an artist. Here we'll have honest conversations with artists, makers, and business experts, and dive deep into the work that happens beyond the studio. If you find value in listening to these conversations, please consider leaving us a rating and a review or sharing some of your favorite episodes with your creative community. It's the easiest way to show us some love and help others find the podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Since this podcast is hosted by two young adults, there's a possibility of some adult language. So if there are sensitive ears around you, be sure to pop in some headphones before you listen. On today's episode of Beyond the Studio, we actually have a two-parter. So this conversation was so great and it went on for a while. So we are giving you two episodes instead of one. So this week, we are starting with our conversation with Sarah Husseini, and next week you will hear the second half of it. Here we go. On today's episode of Beyond the Studio podcast, we are talking with Sarah Husseini, a New York-based ceramicist, artist, and the founder of Not Work Related. Um, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I guess I should say we're kind of laughing as, well, we're laughing a lot as we're starting this conversation. Um, For a little bit of context, Nicole and I actually interviewed Sarah a couple weeks ago, and we had an amazing conversation. And uh, then as things go in 2020 in tech, we lost the audio. So here we are interviewing Sarah again, who was generous enough to grant us like three hours of her time. So thank you so much uh, for being willing to talk to us again. And I'm so glad that we get to talk to you again because it was such a pleasant experience last time and uh, now we'll have it to share. Yeah, round two. (laughs) Exactly. Um, For listeners that are not familiar with your work, would you mind giving us a little background on yourself, your art, and um, include like work and education experience within that that's relevant? Sure. So um, I make ceramics under a name of not work related and it's basically a housewares line that focuses on the design pattern and geometry of like common functional home goods. Um, And it kind of reimagines those mugs, planters, tableware in a more playful and whimsical format. So my background is actually in architecture. I have my master's in architecture from Columbia and that's originally what brought me to New York City uh, about 10 years ago. And I started working in architecture and I felt really restless. So I started looking for something that was more tactile that I felt like had a stronger connection to my design process. Like it, it started feeling really impersonal to hand off drawings and then, you know, someone else builds them and you just see it at the end of the process. So I had done ceramics back in high school um, and it's something that I gravitated towards this was like back in 2016. So I started not work related in 2017 when I was working full time as an architect. And that's the year that I kind of quit cold turkey. And then I found my way like back into it and began freelancing and working part time. And until May of this year, when, when Corona was really taking a toll on the economy, I was working like half-half. So I was freelancing part-time in architecture and then I was spending the rest of the week working on not work-related and and ceramics. So I definitely come to it from a design background. I think that's what has influenced a lot of the pieces and and the way that they present themselves. So I wanna know when you graduated from school, did you think that you were gonna pursue a career as an architect for the rest of your life? Or did you have questions at that point as to what your creative career would look like? How did you go from you know, graduating from architecture school to um, eventually making this pivot and focusing um, nearly full-time on, on not work-related? So there's this funny thing that happens when you go to architecture school, and I don't know if it happens with art school too or in design school, but in, in both undergrad and in grad school, there was this like moment of orientation or like maybe it was almost graduation. And I remember it in both undergrad and grad school, It was like, turn to your right, turn to your left. Only one of you will continue to practice architecture. 
And that was something that they were super upfront about, but I was always like, Psh, no, I'm doing it. Like, why would I, like, what else am I gonna do with, you know, all this education that I spent so much time on? And I, I never thought that I would fall into, you know, the one of the three that was not gonna follow um, this like predetermined path. So it was something that was not, it wasn't unprecedented. It happens all the time. A lot of people that I know have left architecture to do a lot of adjacent design jobs. Some actually have left to do like writing work. Some have left to do like rendering work. But yeah, I didn't expect it to be me. I I really did believe that I was gonna like continue the like capital A architecture path. But at the same time, I'm not super surprised that I left because I had always kind of been forging this path for myself. And and then once it became kind of streamlined, I lost a lot more interest. Like when I was in grad school and you can make whatever you want and like sky is the limit and you're really being challenged intellectually, I was like totally drinking the Kool-Aid all on board. And then when things became more streamlined and it was like, okay, now you do this, you take your exams, you follow this path. I was like, wait, no, I'm, I'm not down for this anymore. <laughs> like it lost a lot of its like shiny exterior once I started working. Um, and it was really a strange experience to design for other people because I had never done that before. So I had just spent seven years making things that I wanted to make. And then out of nowhere, you're you're trying to impress someone that's like, you know, a, a generation older than you and trying to get their approval and client's approval. And it just didn't like, I couldn't imagine myself doing it for the rest of my life. Yeah, it sounds like the expectations of what, what it would look like to pursue a career as an architect was maybe a little bit different than the way that uh, maybe it felt in graduate school or the experience of being an architecture student. I'm curious, when you started picking up ceramics, was was that just meant as a creative outlet, or you know, how were you? Because um, I think you know a lot of a lot of artists and a lot of um, students that are also you know maybe fresh out of school or within a couple of years can probably relate to that, where that realization has to be really impactful. So you know, what do you do with that? And I, I guess what was your thought process at that time? Um, when you realized that maybe this wasn't what you wanted to do? Yeah, I don't think I even realized that it wasn't what I wanted to do. It was more of a physical reaction. I, I felt super physically restless because I had we had always built models or always had a shop or always made prototypes. For the first time in my whole life, I was like sit in one spot and move one finger all day long, just like tap, tap, tap. And I experienced this like very physical restlessness and that's what actually pushed me towards like finding a, a more physical tactile outlet. It definitely wasn't intentional. Like I'm gonna pivot. It it happened as just like a way to keep myself more content with like being able to sit at an office for eight hours a day. It was like, okay, after the eight, nine, 10 hours a day, I can go do something with my hands. So that's kind of where it came from. When did you kind of realize that that was something that you could turn from like I'm interested in working with my hands again into like, maybe I could start selling these or make this into a business. You know, that easy little jump. <laughs> well, like, so I, in 2017, um, I was working at this crazy architecture office and a lot of people will know what it is, so I'm not gonna call them out. But I was getting to the point where I felt really uncomfortable coming in because I never knew when I was gonna go home. It it became the situation of like, there's always more work and you could be there for 12 hours and you would like make the motion to leave and someone would hand you more work. And it, it just felt like unhealthy. Um, and it was unhealthy, but there is a whole sea of like 350 people doing it. And so how do you be the one person that's not? So I did a local market and I thought I did amazing. And so I came in like the next week and I just quit. It happened to line up with when our project was due. So the day that our project was due, I put in my two weeks. And after I put in my two weeks, my manager didn't talk to me for two weeks. And then talked to me, didn't give me any work, nothing. It was like a complete betrayal that I had quit. Even though it's not like I walked out, I, I put in my two weeks. And um, 
he talked to me on my last day at like 3 p.m. And was like, basically just yelled at me for burning the bridge and for like, this is a small industry and like, like you can't, whatever, stuff like that. So insane for someone to take, like you making a decision for yourself so personally to them. It's not like I said, like, I'm going to quit this and go do ceramics or anything. It was just like, I put in my two weeks. I don't want to work 12 hour days. I don't want to get text messages to work on the weekend. And then when I, when I actually put in my two weeks, it was like so personally offensive and the way that I was treated for, I think I'm entitled to move on. Like I'm allowed to stay as long as I want and I'm allowed to leave when I want. The amount of like, I don't know, just, it was like this abuse of power almost where it was like, I'm a manager at this large office. I'm gonna make sure that, you know, this follows you around or that like, this is a small industry and like you're burning this bridge. That really like put me off in a way that, I think really sealed the deal in terms of going back to that type of work again. So I didn't really have a plan. <laughs> I just knew that I didn't want to be there anymore. And so I, I spent like uh, four or so months trying to figure out not work related. And I realized in those four months that not work related wasn't at the point where it was self-sufficient. Like I didn't have the client base. I didn't have the repertoire, the work, I, I didn't have it figured out yet. I just knew that like, if I made stuff, people were gonna buy it, but I, I didn't have the identity of the brand figured out. So in the fall of 2017, a friend of mine reached out to me and was like, hey, I, I know of a freelance job that I think you'd be great for. And I was like, no, I don't think so. I'm like, I don't wanna go back to architecture, but it was actually working in-house um, for a big cosmetics brand doing store design. And so I, I did the interview and then I talked to them in person and I brought like all of this portfolio and all this stuff. And they were like, nah, you're fine. Like we don't need to see like all of this, you know, an exhaustive body of work. And that has really helped. And I was there until that, until May, it really helped me structure not work related because it took away the financial pressure of instantly having a fully fledged brand with like contacts, stores, audience, like that I think takes time. And I would I would definitely recommend to anyone that has started something on the side or knows that they wanna start something to keep some sort of biweekly paycheck because once you jump off of that, you're kissing biweekly paychecks goodbye. And you might have some amazing months and you might have some terrible months and it takes a long time to get to the point where you have enough like substance as a brand to be able to take care of yourself. Uh, it doesn't happen overnight unless, I don't know. You could be an anomaly and it could happen overnight, never say never, but I would say it has taken a solid three years to get to the point where I lost my job in May um, because my company laid off 70% of their freelancers and it was okay. Not work-related could carry me through but if this happened in 2017, like there was no way. It wasn't strong enough to carry me through. Yeah, I know that's something Nicole and I have talked about before on the podcast regarding like my own business because I exist in a very, not in the ceramics world, but in a similar sort of artist maker kind of sphere. And it can be extremely feast or famine, very inconsistent. You can have seasons like often during the holidays where you're like, oh my God, I could potentially buy a house with this money. And then there are other times where you're like, oh, I can't even buy my groceries with this money. So it's like, it can be all over the place. And it's really hard to find consistency without having years under your belt to establish a, a name for yourself so that you can have seasonal consistency. Yeah, I think learning the ups and downs of your respective industry, you know, whether that is something that you can control or like, you know, holiday wise you can't control yeah there's no one there to like really teach that to you and I don't know about you guys but like I never learned that type of stuff in school yeah definitely was not taught in school <laughs> so that that just took I mean you have to go through at least a whole year to understand what's happening in the course of those 12 months that to learn those ups and downs and then you probably have to do it one more time to like really look back and be like, okay, I have two years, I can see like what's up, what's down, what I can do to like supplement those, those like, you know, slower spots. 
I don't know, I get asked all the time, like, I want to do ceramics full time. And it's like, hold on, hold on, hold on. Like, don't, I want to make sure you can get groceries and like pay your rent. Like it takes a long time. Um, and I'm not saying the way that I did it is the only way to do it, but it's the safest I feel. And like financially most secure, but also like emotionally, you don't want the thing that you're doing um, that you really, really love to then become the enemy because it's not paying your bills or buying your groceries. I I just really appreciate that perspective because I feel like there's a lot of uh, talk and messaging around making the jump or making the leap when it comes to transitioning full time into a creative endeavor. And I feel like, you know, it, it sounds like it's this huge leap of faith. Like it's just something you have to do one day, you wake up and you decide to quit your day job. But, you know, the reality is that it takes a lot to build up to that point. And so really creating a a transition plan for yourself can be the smartest thing to do. And so just hearing about how you sort of phased yourself in so that, you know, when eventually you did cut ties, whether it was totally planned or unplanned, you were prepared to, you know, to really go all in. Yeah, I think that um, I learned really quickly in, in the few months I had between jobs that like I didn't have enough work to do this full time. Even if I showed up every day at the studio and I made you know 30 pieces a day, I didn't have the audience or the, the client base to buy that stuff. So it became really clear really fast that those things would have to grow at the same time. Like I would have to continue to keep my architecture career going and then I would have to grow this piece by piece, month by month. And I'm super happy I have. So I'm curious, as you were beginning to build Not Work Related into a more sustainable business, what were some of the steps that you were starting to take to um, fill in the knowledge gaps around developing some of that business knowledge, you know, whether related to marketing or, um, you know, just other aspects of your, of, of running a business? Yeah, I think the biggest thing that I've learned is to make friends and and to make friends that want to support you and want to see you also succeed. In the beginning, the the very, very first thing I did was I reached out to my boyfriend's co-worker's girlfriend who was, she's a milliner and they used to live in New York City and now they're in Portland. But I didn't really know anyone that was like a successful maker and... I didn't feel comfortable asking someone in the ceramic space because I felt like it was competitive. And I didn't want to put someone in the position of like giving away their like hard earned knowledge. So I asked her, I sent her an email and I was like, hi, I, I don't really know um, much, but I do know like some terms. How do you, you know, make a line sheet or like, how do you contact a store or just like, how is, that interaction structured and she was super nice. She sent me her line sheet. She sent me a line sheet of someone that makes socks, which was great because they're in spaces that like I don't have any overlap with. So it didn't feel like- Ceramic socks, I mean, (laughs) it's only a matter of time. I'm sure someone, ceramic shoes are already a thing. So I'm sure socks are like right there, but that felt really important. So I think that's definitely something I would recommend too. Like if you, if you don't feel comfortable asking someone for help um, and you don't maybe have that many connections in the ceramics world, I would say finding someone that does something different than you, whose SKUs and whose products are never going to compete with yours. I think it's a really easy, safe way to learn from each other and in a way that, you know, you're not hurting each other. Like as time has gone on, I think I've made more and more ceramic friendships that are more open and supportive. It's something that I've really learned I wouldn't say the hard way, but I think it's in my nature and, and maybe part of it comes from architecture. I'm I'm inherently competitive. I've learned by making ceramics to tone that down because I've had people support me and tell me and, and help me in ways that like I would never expect, like in super generous ways. And there have been things that I've never done before, like negotiating contracts with big retailers. And I, I don't know what to do because like you don't learn this in school. And I also didn't really go to school for this. And I've reached out to ceramicists that have a few years of experience on me and they've been so kind to even just like, here's my phone number, just call me. And it's an openness 
that I never, ever expected. I expected a lot of like stepping on each other to climb up the ladder because that's what I had experienced in architecture. But I've realized that if you create an environment where you can support each other, that person's gonna only turn around and support you. And it, I just like, I can't explain how eye-opening that has been to have people like, like people have recommended me for jobs. And it's like, what? Like you're passing up an opportunity and you're giving it to me. And, and that's kind of mind boggling because I don't feel like that happens as much in architecture or at least in my experience. So to see that type of like graciousness, even when I started the studio um, a month ago, the amount of people I reached out to for even like silly stuff, like how do you set up your sink? What do you do with this? What do you do with that? People have been like so gracious and it only makes me want to be that much more open with them. So yeah, I would say reach out, make friends, um, interact with people, even if it's just through Instagram. Um, I'd also recommend like shooting people an email and, and just genuinely asking for some guidance and personal help. I think most people are pretty nice. Yeah, I know I can definitely relate to that experience. Like when I first started, there were so many things that in art school, you're definitely not taught about line sheets or even what like a wholesale or retail or consignment breakdown looks like. You don't really learn a lot of these things and even just the basic language around it can be completely confusing. And so having someone that's willing to kind of explain that to you, but also help you avoid maybe some pitfalls they may have made or pass on opportunities that may not be right for them, but may be right for you. I feel like there, there definitely are spheres that can be highly competitive, but I, I really love existing in, in the world that's very generous and where we're all sort of learning from each other. And, you know, we may not be making work in the same sphere, but if we can learn from each other's mistakes or experiences to, I mean, that makes such a big difference. Yeah, I feel like it's the only way that the podcast even exists. You know, it just hinges on the the generosity of others being willing to share. And I think part of even creating this platform came from Amanda and I having experiences where other artists had expressed generosity to us. You know, like we both were the benefactors of, you know, people early on in our careers that were willing to share what they'd learned and um, and to help us out in that way. And so... Um, it's been, it's been hugely impactful. Um, I'm also curious if there are other things that surprised you, you know, related to getting the ceramics business off the ground when you were just starting to reach out or, um, you know, beginning to learn what might go into making this work. Yeah. I think the biggest thing I had this vision of, of this list, like the stockist list that was just like a whole page long. And that was like my, my vision of what was legitimacy, being able to be stocked in like 30 stores or, you know, whatever it was. And then I tried it. Like I tried to say yes to every store that contacted me. I tried to make orders for as many places as I could and get like really get out there. And I thought it would bring me like so much success and so much gratification, but I actually I felt totally opposite after I, I really jumped in. I realized that it wasn't sustainable for my brand or, or for what I do in ceramics to consistently lose 50%. And I think that's something that people don't realize when they dream of working with stores and not to make stores as the bad guy. Like having small businesses to work with is amazing. It's just not a sustainable business model for everyone all the time. And so I tried it for like a year and I wasn't able to save any money. I, I couldn't get over the hump of each month to like put any money away to put back into the business because I was losing 50% of every piece I was making. And although it was giving me this like robust stockist list, in the end, it was a super disorganized way of working because I'm making, you know, five of this for this store, two of that, and then another store wants like three of those and five of this and like, you know, 20 of the other thing. And so there is no efficiency when you're working on all of these disparate orders that are anywhere from like maybe 20 to 40 pieces. So in the last year, I've consciously pulled back 
on all that wholesale and I've gotten some pushback from like, when are you gonna take more stores? When are you gonna take more stuff? And I don't know. I, I just know that I'm willing to do some and I'm willing to partner with places that make sense for the brand in that moment. But if I said yes to everyone, I wouldn't be able to survive as a business. Like not work-related wouldn't be able to exist if everything I made was 50% off. And if it was gonna survive, then every mug would be $100, which would then like start to hurt in like some other way because it would become inaccessible. So I think that was, that was a big turning point for me, realizing that I can do less work and have a better quality of life by starting to build the direct-to-consumer part of my brand. And I think it also became really gratifying to create relationships with the consumers and the customers and be able to not have the middleman. Because like the middleman was really similar to my relationship in architecture, where there's always like a partner, a principal, a client, there's a board, and then the end user is like someone else that maybe you never meet. So being able to have like direct relationships with people and have them like send you images of stuff that you, they got and they got it in the mail and then they're using it or like they gave it to someone as a gift. It enriched my relationship with the stuff that I was making so much more. It became so much more personal. So yeah, that's the big thing I, w- I would say. I'm not anti-wholesale by any means. And if it works for your business model, then like do it, but don't do it because you think it makes you a real artist or a designer or maker, like you can do that on your own terms. Yes, I just wanna echo that so much because I I also had a very similar idea when I was, you know, a, a baby maker in my career. And I remember looking at like Rifle Paper Company and I'm looking at their stockists and I'm like, wow, this is, so long they have to organize it by region it's just it's just insane and amazing and I thought that the more stores my work was in the more customers I had then therefore but it is really hard to get an idea of what even works within your business when you're not directly interacting with your customers and it say um I think it was 20 I guess it was 2018 or 2019 I had done this pie chart of my income and it was like one third direct sales, one third wholesale, one third uh, like craft shows and in-person markets, pop-ups, whatever, and then a little bit of miscellaneous in there with some freelance. But the work distribution was almost like 70% going towards wholesale. And if I would start working on preparing for the holiday season in the summer and then would be overwhelmed by the holiday season and think like, okay, I should start making holiday things earlier in the year. And maybe really the solution is to just stop doing wholesale around those times instead of dedicating even more time to it. And then COVID kind of forced the shift into direct sale because that retail option kind of stopped being available. But I'd I think it's important to mention because wholesale can seem super dreamy because you're moving so many things at once. And if you are trying to grow, that can be very beneficial. But if you're, if you're trying to pay yourself well, it's really hard to do that with handmade items. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I, I still love the idea that someone can go physically and like find a piece somewhere in a store. I'm definitely not against that. I just think that there has to be some kind of balance and it will be different for every person. It'll be different for every item. It'll be different for even ceramics. It might not work for me because a lot of my stuff is hand painted or like, you know, it's fussier. Um, it might work for someone that's like slip casting or working um, in a press mold or in a, in a more automated machine studio. At the scale I'm at, it just doesn't, it doesn't work if everything is 50% off. And it it took me a long time to learn that and to let go of the ego of being in like a million stores and having that stockist list that was like organized by a region. And I've totally been there. How did you start to shift your business in that way and build more direct relationships with the people that were buying and owning your work? You mentioned doing some craft shows and um, we haven't really talked a lot about social media yet, but what were some of the ways that you were starting to cultivate those and sell your work more directly? 
Definitely doing, so I was doing, um, I think six local shows and even that got expensive. I don't know if you guys, I'm sure you guys have things like Renegade, but it's, it's like $600 for a table. It is so expensive. And then you have to sit there for two days. I don't think it's, mm-hmm. it, it's a bad, it, it's good. Like I've, I've always found those experiences to be really positive, but I, I really wanted to stop having to give people money or give people stuff that was discounted in order to make any of my sales. So it kind of happened because I think you mentioned it before, I mean, the, the timing that COVID hit, it played into a lot of my mental shifts. And so I found myself in March without a studio um, because I had been working out of a ceramics collective and there was like 35 members. And even though 35 people weren't actively using it, maybe there were 10, maybe there were 15, it was still too high. So we shut the studio down and there was a period of time when it was like one person a day. And even with one person a day, like I can't run a business working one day a week or working half a day a week. We got it up to the point where you could have like two shifts a week and like that's still not enough to run a real business. So I, in March, I made the decision to just grab all my stuff and bring it home. So I brought home a wheel, brought home like 300 pounds of clay. I brought home all my tools, buckets, like everything. And I remember when I left, a friend of mine helped me drag everything to my friend's car. Um, And I was like, I feel like I'm preparing for the apocalypse. And she's like, yeah, I don't think that like, it's gonna last that long. She's like, I think I'm gonna take home like one bag of clay. And I was like, no, it's gonna last forever. Like I, I, it was the day that New York City put into place shelter, like shelter in place happened that day. And I had been seeing like stories and hearing about in Europe, like you couldn't leave, you couldn't, you couldn't go anywhere if you didn't have like a piece of paper, everything was like time stamped. And I was like, what if I can't ever go back to the studio um, and get more stuff? So it was like, I understand to bring everything. So I borrowed my friend's Jeep, like loaded it with everything I could possibly grab. And I brought it home and I set it up all in my bathroom. And I started sharing, you know, that whole process of making work at home, making work in the bathroom. And I found so much camaraderie in the internet and so much, I don't know, like, relief in being able to share this experience and like how insane it was with all these people that were like cheering me on and and so I I think I really unconsciously subconsciously opened up during that time because it was a hard time and I'm not seeing anyone else I'm like stuck at home internet is like my only you know social interaction so I I really got to share a lot about the experience and people really responded in a really positive way. I started putting more of myself into my Instagram and my social media and into my, my business as a whole. I think, especially going to architecture school, you, you're kind of taught to let the work speak for itself. It's a lot of people doing the work on a project aren't given credit. Like you get the partner's name or the principal's name and, and everyone that had been actually doing the work is kind of nameless. And I'd gotten used to, you know, pinning up and saying a couple words and then like standing there being quiet and letting people absorb what the work was. And I had taken that approach to ceramics because it felt so comfortable, but COVID just opened up this like lack of filter. And uh, I don't know if it's because I needed the social interaction or what, but it was another element that I felt like strengthened the relationship that I had with the people that had been my consumers or like my you know followers on Instagram. So it was a really weird situation and it was a really weird solution, like bringing it all home and setting up in my bathroom. But like the humor of it, I think also hooked people and, and not in a malicious way, but just like it was funny and, and hilarious to be like, okay, this is what we're doing now. Like 2020 is the year of the bathroom studio. And I like made, um, I, I made one set of, of pieces for an update and I got like a, a little toilet paper roll stamp and it says like 2020 in it. And, and just being able to like 
relate to everybody in that way and like memorialize this whole experience has really given me a voice um and I think has strengthened that relationship to my audience and and like I never expected that it would be me like like the personality person factor that strengthened the brand I always thought it was going to be about the work but in the end I, I really feel like it was that human connection that helped the brand grow and and make it what it is so we're talking about probably a few months time span between then and now what is it like handling rapid growth of your business I feel like there's not a lot of information out there about kind of the growing pains experience of growing a business because the whole focus oftentimes is like, I'm trying to grow, I'm trying to grow. But the growing also comes with its own whole new set of struggles and frustrations and problems that you have to figure out how to learn or you have to figure out on the fly. And like, what are some things you're figuring out right now? It was so hard. I feel like I went from a normal amount of reposting interactions, whatever, into like an insane, to the point where there were days when I was like, I'm on my phone for like three hours because I'm just trying to keep on top of messages and emails or or whatever is like, my phone is just buzzing off the hook. I, at some point I I gave up on my email and I, I let my boyfriend take it over. Yeah because I couldn't work and it's a lot easier. So he's a graphic designer. It's a lot easier for him to like have that screen open on the side because he's working on a computer and a lot harder for me to like wash my hands, dry them with a sponge, dry them with a towel because I don't have a proper sink and then like Mm -hmm. check my phone and then I'm like answering emails and then I'm not actually getting any work done. So giving up the control of my inbox was something I never expected to be doing, but I, I couldn't keep on top of the emails. It was like, people wanted to send me a vacuum form. People wanted me to like, do this, do that. And it was like, can you record videos on Snapchat? Can you like more requests for stuff than I, than I ever could keep up with. And I had a lot of wholesale stores contacting me around the same time. And it like, I, I said no to basically almost everyone because I was working out of a bathroom. Like, what, what do you expect me uh, to be able to produce? Like, I I couldn't I couldn't logically like fill any orders or anything. I would say it has calmed down a lot, and I've learned to I learned over the years to say no and to be comfortable saying no. I think in the beginning. I was afraid that if I said no to anything, it was going to be to the detriment of my business and my brand. But learning what things are worth investing your time and energy into and what things you can't do. I think there's nothing like a barrage of emails and messages to make you realize that like I physically cannot say yes to all of this. And it forces you to learn how to say no and really decide what are the things that like really, really, really make sense? And what are the things that like are not gonna add anything but work right now? It's pretty crazy. I I don't know how else to describe it. I hope that this is like the beginning of a lot more growth. And if it happens in a crazy way, like I'll take it. I'm fine with it. Like I'll take it any way that it comes. (laughs) Um, But even in that experience, I felt like I put a lot of myself out there and I wanted people to know who I was. If they were going to follow me, I wanted them to know like who I was, what I'm about. It all happened like around the same time as like Black Lives Matter too. And and that was really important. I kind of felt like if you were going to follow me for only ceramic content or just to watch like videos of me trimming or, or whatever, I... I just wanted to be upfront that like that's not all you were gonna get and if you wanted to stick around and like hang then I'm more than happy to have you but if you wanted it to be apolitical like this wasn't gonna be the place you wanted to be at like I didn't want 
to feel like I had to be silent in order to retain followers or I don't know, like protect my business um, because those things are so intertwined. Like you can't take me out of the ceramics. Like I'm the only person who makes them. Um, and so being someone that isn't white, I, I felt really strongly that I had to be upfront with my feelings politically and I didn't really get any backlash, which is really bizarre because I have friends who are white ceramicists that got shit from their followers for posting, you know, political feelings or whatever. And that's like a whole other risk with like exposing more of yourself. But I do think it's important to, I don't know, be upfront with that. Like, Well, I think there's an inherent privilege, too, in being able to keep politics out of the conversation. And I feel like something that just, I don't know, I'm realizing or seeing through all of this and through, you know, all the different ways that the conversation around Black Lives Matter and um, just, you know, everything else that's going on in our country and our world is really um, permeated is that, you know, every every space is is inherently political. And so, you know, we do have a responsibility to make clear what our values and what our beliefs are. So I think there is, you know, really something to that. And it's, it is encouraging to see that there is, seems to be, rather than that being somehow controversial, there, there really seems to be, you know, people are embracing that and really appreciate it. And it sounds like it's really allowed them to connect with you further and to really get to know you for your work, but also on a personal level. So I think there is something hopeful in that too. And, and just, you know, in the decision to be vocal and to speak out about what, you know, what you believe. Yeah, I think it's made it, um, it's made it a lot easier to be myself too, just to know that I had, I think I had always shied away from, from political stuff. No one wants to, you know, hear my opinions on on any of that stuff is like the the stance I always took. And I always thought that it was protecting my brand. But some of the growth that I experienced before everything happened with Black Lives Matter, it made me feel more secure that even if I lost, you know, whatever number of followers because of my political beliefs, it didn't matter. Like I was still okay. Like I don't need to be quiet so that like five people will continue to follow me. Um, and I think yeah. letting, letting go of that like desperation for business or like desperation for like pleasing everyone, it made the connection between like myself and not work related so much stronger. Like I, I don't know how to explain it except that like since March to now, it feels like just one thing, um, like myself and not work related are really like the same. And before that, it felt like something that I did. And it was consciously kind of that. Like, I, there's a reason I didn't name it, like, Sarah Ceramics or whatever. Because I was like, I didn't want it to be about me. I wanted it to, to be its own thing. And over time, I realized that, like, actually, it is about me. And it's everything that I make and want to make. But it, it's also the opinions that I have and, like, the beliefs that I have. And, and you're supporting all of that by like supporting not work related it's not it's not just like a mug or a planter it's like a whole person behind this brand and it has been really nice to share that with everyone yeah I feel like um I don't know in the past there was this sort of idea that artists are just supposed to make art we're not supposed to talk politics we're not supposed to inject our opinions but we're artists. What we create comes from us. So of course, our politics and our opinions of inform the, the work that we create. Like, how could it not? And now it almost seems like it's shifted where it's like, if you're not talking about your politics, then then you're the one in trouble now. And And I think it's important in general to kind of, as creators to, I mean, I guess I can't make a blanket statement. It's a personal opinion or a, a personal decision. Everyone can choose to share as much or as little about themselves as they want to. Um, but I think as artists, it can really help to have deeper relationships with the people that follow your work when they know 
who is producing the work and kind of why you make the decisions that you do based on who you are and your life experience and your beliefs? I agree. I think also if, I think this is something that a lot of people ask, like, I don't know, like I suck at Instagram, I'm not good at it. Or or like, you know, you're so great at sharing whatever. I think once I started sharing my political beliefs and, and things like that, it was like, that was so personal that sharing like ceramics videos after that feels like nothing like sharing um the really hard stuff was emotionally exhausting that like now sharing like this is how you recycle clay is like it's like nothing it feels it feels like nothing and um that's the biggest thing i would recommend for people that are like struggling with their social media presence too is there's a lot of people making something similar to what you're making or who have the same skill sets as you do. Maybe they're applying them in a different way, but you as a person are really unique and this isn't the only way to do it, but I I do think that sharing more of who you are makes people appreciate the stuff that you do um, and humanizes your product too. I think I learned that super early on. My first wholesale contract, like my first stockist, wasn't super nice and was really, really aggressive about timelines and just didn't understand that I was like one person working part-time. And I, I used to do this thing when I wrote about my work or, or on social media, I would say we, like, we're looking at this today or whatever. That's funny. I used to do that too, even if it was Same. like a one-woman show, because I think... It's so funny. There's like this perceived legitimacy that yeah. if you're part of a large organization that people will take you seriously. Yeah, like you're more legit, like there's people behind the scenes. And when that stockist was not budging on like deadlines and, and I don't know, just giving me a hard time, um, I remember writing emails being like, it's just me, like I'm working part time. I'm doing my best. Like I can't make this happen any faster because I am still going to work and to have the person on the other end not really care about the fact that like I was a person like I was a single human doing this Mm -hmm. really affected how I wanted to present the like the we like we was gone in that moment I was like I'm hurting myself by creating this facade like there's this whole team Mm. of people like there's nobody else here. It's just me. Like I make Mm -hmm. everything. And that was the beginning of some of the transparency. I think I realized that it was like kind of hurting myself to make it look like I had this whole operation under control and like it was super polished and there were all these people behind the scenes. And in the reality, it's just like me and my callous fingers and like, my like, broken nails and, and just like the reality and the messiness of all of it. Um, I've been super stubborn about never using Lee again because I never want someone to think that they can push back because there's some whole manufacturing team behind me. And like in reality, it's no one, it's just me. So I'm not saying don't use we, but think about it when you use it and the image it portrays of how many people are behind your business. It's so interesting. Like, what is this corporate mentality that we have that we have to put on this this business front that it can't be that, you know, we're, we're all just humans and we're, we're making this work and we're working together. And I don't know where that of, comes from either. A lot either. of people say we, and I still see it. I think it's this yeah. desire to appear like more robust than you really are. Yeah. Yeah. I know I definitely have used it in the past. And now I'll use it sarcastically when I'm like, we here in the studio. And by that, I mean me and my cat, uh, who is clearly the shop assistant, who does not answer emails. Uh, I think <laughs> there should be no shame in doing everything. And mm-hmm. if that means that you're slow at answering emails or you're slow at sending out a package or whatever, like at the end of the day, I think presenting yourself as a human will help people realize that you're a human. 
Um, <laughs> Funny like, how that works. <laughs> it's kind of crazy, but almost, I, I don't think I've ever been contacted like, hey, I didn't get my package yet. I ordered it like two days ago or, or anything like that. Like, people have been so understanding and appreciative of, you know, whatever I'm capable of, of pushing out into the world that I think if I wasn't upfront with the struggles and like the not so pretty sides of things, people would have maybe higher expectations of myself, which like, and I'm not saying like lower your expectations, but I, I do think that like showing that you're a human being um, really helps people to treat you like a human being and give you the breaks that we need as human beings, especially with everything that's happening right now. So it seems yeah. like a crazy concept, but it's super simple. <laughs> no, I mean, this is about to sound super like buzzword, but I feel like there's something to be said about being authentically vulnerable with people that just sets the right expectation. <laughs> Using we suggest that you have a team to support you. And if you don't, then it might be helpful to just say, hey, I'm doing all of this. Therefore, it's going to take some time because you know how many hours there are in the day and I can't use them all on you or, you know, whatever. But I think that's such an important thing to really think about with uh, how, I don't know, in addition to like exposing more of yourself, but just exposing the hardships of being a business, because I think we often believe that it's easier than it actually is. And when we see it for the realities of it, it helps. And in any sphere. Yeah. And I think just living in like the, you know, we live in a a capitalist society where you can order something on Amazon Prime and it can get delivered like same or next day. So I think there, there could be this expectation that, you know, everything is instant and there's just 24 seven productivity. But, you know, if you are supporting, supporting local businesses, small businesses and supporting artists and, you know, handmade makers that, that, that's not, you know, we, they can't be held to the same standards as Amazon. Right. Absolutely. Uh-huh. What? You so, don't have two-day free shipping? <laughs> I'll deliver it directly to your door. <laughs> That's it for the first half of this episode. Be sure to tune in next week to listen to the rest of the conversation. That's it for this episode of the Beyond the Studio podcast. You can find show notes, references, and a brief summary of the episode over at our website, beyondthe.studio. While you're there, be sure to sign up for our mailing list to find out about upcoming guests, special announcements, and podcast giveaways. 